You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week... We explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 75, The Opening. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway, you might remember that last episode started with a disclaimer about disturbing content. I think this episode is a bit more tame but it is still quite a bit more violent and potentially distressing than a typical Age of Napoleon episode. So, once again, if you're listening with your kids or are sensitive to disturbing content, you might consider skipping. We left off last time in the late summer of 1791. The chaos of the revolution had brought the various political factions inside Haiti to the brink of civil war. but. Just before hostilities could commence, they were overtaken by events. On August 21st, a hitherto secret organization among the enslaved black population launched a massive uprising. Within days, the insurgents had overrun most of the plantations on the fertile northern plain. Soon, they were operating in groups numbering in the thousands. Exact numbers are hard to come by. The rebels were not exactly keeping detailed records during this period, but I've seen estimates as low as 20,000 armed insurgents and as high as 80,000. If you'll recall, the uprising was supposed to occur simultaneously in every corner of the colony, everywhere from small coffee farms in the highlands to the big sugar plantations on the plain, and from the rugged wilderness to the big port cities on the coast but things hadn't gone quite according to plan. There are many competing explanations as to how it happened, but there seems to have been some confusion over the timetable, or someone jumped the gun, or someone was forced to make a snap decision to go early. Whatever the reason, the way things worked out, the rebellion had not been a simultaneous colony-wide event but something that had started at a specific place, then spread elsewhere. Thanks to the pre-existing conspiracy, it spread much faster than it otherwise would have. As the leaders of the organization got wind of what was happening, they simply moved their timetables forward. However, as a result of this confusion, the rebellion was effectively confined to the north of the colony. This was the part of the country with the highest concentration of big sugar plantations, and thus the highest concentration of slaves. So it was natural for this to become the epicenter of the rebellion. Unfortunately for the slaves and the rest of the colony, by the time the news reached the center and the south, the element of surprise had been lost. The free colonists were on guard. The governor and the remains of his administration were holed up in Cap Francais, the main city of northern Haiti, along with the city's residents and hundreds of white refugees who had escaped or been allowed to pass through rebel territory. The governor quickly realized he didn't have the manpower to challenge the rebels directly. The colonial forces were better trained and equipped than the rebels, 
but they were outnumbered by more than ten to one. And with each passing day, the insurgents looked more and more like a real army. The towns and plantations seized by the rebels all had weapons caches. These caches had been placed as a safeguard against slave rebellions. But the colonists had been overtaken by the insurgency before they could muster their militias. And now, their armories were the primary source of weapons for the rebellion. Soon, the insurgents captured the border towns on the frontier with the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo, and they were able to import a small number of arms through Spanish territory. The rebel bands were becoming an army, literally as well as figuratively. By the end of 1791, they had begun using military ranks. They honed their skills, skirmishing with the colonists and the militia, and men who had military experience from living as maroons or serving in West African armies shared their knowledge with their comrades. It soon became clear to everyone in Cap Francais that it would be suicide to sortie out of the city and challenge the rebels in the field. For their part, the insurgents made a series of small probing attacks on Cap Francais and quickly discovered that the city was well defended. The colonists had their backs to the sea and were prepared to fight like hell to avoid annihilation. The only way to take the city would be through a proper siege with entrenchments, heavy artillery, and engineers. The rebels had none of the resources or know-how for this enterprise. And so, neither side was able to directly challenge the other. The governor dispatched men to the edges of rebel-controlled territory to keep the insurgency contained, but beyond that, there was no major action for months. But despite the lack of military developments, this was a bloody time in Haiti. And not only because of the constant small-scale raids and skirmishes which characterize guerrilla warfare. The few remaining whites in rebel-controlled territory were almost all prisoners, doctors, priests, or working directly for the rebel commanders. And so, revenge-minded ex-slaves turned against any fellow black Haitians who were deemed too sympathetic to the whites, or insufficiently committed to the rebellion. There were also cases in which rebels who were deemed too violent were killed for staining the cause of liberty with their cruelty. In Cap Francais, the colonists were doing much the same thing. The governor carried out a bloody purge of the city's black population. The white authorities were still struggling to come to terms with the scale of the disaster, and they saw conspiracies around every corner. The small white agitators had their own theories about what had caused these events, mostly focused on their perennial enemies, the free mixed-race population. Lynchings of mixed-race men became relatively common inside the city. So far, we've only talked about the North, but things were not going well in the South either. If you'll recall last episode, the main city in this part of the country, Port-au-Prince, had been seized by mutinous soldiers under the influence of wealthy big white colonists. However, there was another center of power in this part of the country, an assembly of mixed-race leaders, which had recently drafted a manifesto threatening armed rebellion unless legal discrimination against their community was lifted. Their ultimatum expired, and, true to their word, the mixed-race leaders began building an army. As I mentioned last episode, the mixed-race cause had an even bigger manpower problem than the white colonists. Their community was even smaller, there were no reinforcements coming from Europe, and they didn't have access to the superior equipment and training, which can be an equalizer in combat. So, they resorted to arming trusted slaves, promising them freedom once the conflict ended. This would have been unthinkable only a few months earlier, but in times like these, survival often means doing the unthinkable. The white colonists mustered their forces, marched out of Port-au-Prince to suppress the rebellion, and were soundly defeated. While the North burned, it seemed the South would play host to a second civil war. 
On paper, it seemed like the ex-slave rebels of the North had a lot to celebrate. They were by far the largest army in the colony, and they were growing stronger every day. The most lucrative part of Haiti had fallen under their control, and a huge proportion of the black population had been liberated from their former masters. Their victories were stunning. Only a few months earlier, none of this would have seemed possible. However, the rebel leadership was worried. I'm sure some of this was the quite natural anxiety which comes from attempting something so dangerous and unprecedented. But there was also real cause for concern. There were good reasons the rebellion had been planned as a simultaneous event all over the island. The rebels knew that if the free colonists were left a single foothold, they would fight ferociously to regain control over the colony. And if this became a long, bitter struggle, the rebels would lose some of their biggest advantages, surprise, fervor, and high morale. And the free colonists would have time to bring their biggest advantages into the fight. Money, superior firepower, training, discipline, and support from Europe. Despite the rebels' stunning success, their failure to totally overwhelm the free colonists had created a dangerous long-term problem. Time was on the enemy's side. Then the setbacks began. In early November, Duddy Buchmann was killed in a skirmish with French troops. You might recall Buchmann was that holy man who had presided over the ceremony at the Bois-Quémont, where he was anointed spiritual leader of the rebellion. Most historians agree Buchmann was closer to a figurehead than a dictator, but he was a charismatic and ferocious war leader. He was the face of the rebellion. His death hit the rank-and-file insurgents very hard. There was also ominous news coming from the South. The Big White Planters, headquartered in the southern capital of Port-au-Prince, had made peace with the mixed-race assembly, who controlled many of the smaller towns and much of the countryside in that region. With their forces defeated on the battlefield, and the slave rebellion in the north growing in strength, the Big Whites abruptly abandoned their commitment to white supremacy, and caved to most of the mixed-race assembly's demands, in the name of unity against their common enemy. The insurgents had taken full advantage of the divisions among the free colonists. The rebellion might not have been possible if the various factions and colonial politics hadn't been so focused on fighting each other. Now, faced with an existential threat, the enemies of the rebellion were uniting. The truce between the white colonists and the mixed-race community was not built to last. There was too much bad blood between the two groups. They almost immediately returned to squabbling with one another. However, their détente at this crucial moment was a setback for the rebellion. Then, in early 1792, a small fleet arrived from France, carrying several thousand more regular soldiers to bolster the garrison as well as a three-man commission from the Revolutionary Assembly in Paris. The commissioners had been sent to represent the revolution on the island, to ensure the dictates of the legislature in Paris were followed, and hopefully untangle some of the colony's domestic political problems. This expedition had actually been dispatched in the early summer, and so they arrived in Haiti totally unaware that the colony had spiraled into hellish violence and civil war in the intervening months. Imagine what a rude awakening that must have been. So, in early 1792, despite their increasing prowess on the battlefield, the situation was beginning to look less favorable to the rebels. The free colonists had been reinforced and were forming a united front against the insurgency. It goes to show you what a difficult undertaking the rebellion was. The insurgents had the biggest army on the island. They hadn't suffered a single major defeat in the field. And yet, there was now a growing feeling among the rebel leadership that their backs were against the wall. They had to do something to avert disaster now, while they still had cards to play. Unfortunately, military solutions were off the table. 
An attack on Cap Francais had been out of the question in the summer. It was even further out of reach now that the city had been reinforced. The colonists had garrisons in the highlands, separating the north and south of the country, which made a blow to the south difficult as well. With no good military options, the only move left was to negotiate. And that's what the rebel leadership did. It is at this point that Toussaint enters the story. As I said last time, we don't really know much about where he was or what he was doing during the chaotic early months of the rebellion, but by now, he was living at the headquarters camp of one of the main rebel leaders, Georges Biassou. He was playing many roles. Toussaint was a doctor, advisor, and diplomat, as well as a military leader. By now, he was using his surname, Breda, less and less. It had been taken from the plantation where he was born. Now, Breda was burned, and Toussaint was engaged in a life-or-death struggle against the free colonists. It no longer seemed appropriate to use the name of a planter. To the rebels, he was simply Papa Toussaint. This was partially a sign of respect and affection, and partially a commentary on his age. This was a young person's movement. Many of the leaders were in their early 20s, and Toussaint was pushing 50, old enough to literally be their father. In his public statements and dealings with the whites, he used a variety of pseudonyms. My personal favorite is the Doctor General. Last episode, I mentioned the uncertainty over Toussaint's role in the early phase of the rebellion. Hopefully by now you can see why people might ask questions. Toussaint has just suddenly appeared in our story as one of the leading men in Biasu's camp. We have no indication of how or when this occurred, and no clues as to what Toussaint might have done to win the trust of Biasu and other rebel leaders. Perhaps he was simply an impressive figure who had many skills the rebels desperately needed. Or... Perhaps he had already been involved in secret from the very beginning, and went to join his comrades when the time was right. An intriguing question, but we went into this last episode, and I don't want to get bogged down. By late 1792, Toussaint was the de facto foreign minister of rebel-controlled Haiti, and with the war in a stalemate, the future of the rebellion was increasingly dependent on negotiation and political maneuvering two of Toussaint's greatest strengths. Through Toussaint, the rebel leadership offered a deal to the colonists, and it was shockingly moderate and conciliatory. They offered to end the rebellion, order their men to return to the plantations, and go back to work. All they asked in return was a general amnesty for crimes committed during the rebellion, better treatment of slaves, and freedom and a chance to leave Haiti forever for 50 of the most senior rebel commanders to avoid reprisals. The great horror of the rebellion, which threatened the very survival of the colony, could be ended by the stroke of a pen. Historians debate the rationale behind this offer. Perhaps it's as simple as this. The rebels knew time was working against them that their failure to secure the entire colony in the first stage of the rebellion meant this whole enterprise was likely to fail sooner or later. So, better try to make a deal now than wait until they had no more leverage. If this interpretation is true, it certainly doesn't paint the rebel leadership in a very flattering light. Apparently, they were willing to sell out their people for a chance at personal freedom. Then again, if they really believed they were doomed to fail, it would have been a remarkable achievement to get the slaves of Haiti an extra day off and free them from the whip and the torturer's knife. However, there's also a school of thought that claims this was a political maneuver. By this way of thinking, the rebel leaders knew this deal would never be accepted, no matter how generous the terms. There was no room for negotiation in the master-slave dynamic. This was a relationship of total domination. Accepting terms from the rebels, however moderate, would cut against everything the colonists had come to believe about the institution of slavery and the racial hierarchy. 
it would be a tacit acknowledgement of the humanity and agency of the Black Rebels. How could things return to the way they'd been before the Rebellion, after an admission like that? By offering a moderate, pragmatic proposal that they knew the colonists could not accept, the rebel leaders were setting a political trap for their enemies. White and mixed-race moderates would be appalled that an opportunity to end this catastrophe on good terms had been thrown away. It would help shift the narrative around the rebellion, which was still widely perceived as an unfocused orgy of violence and revenge, rather than a serious political movement with a positive vision. You might think that's a pretty devious maneuver for a ragtag rebel army, and you'd be right. But this was just Toussaint's style. He was a master at presenting himself and his movement as moderate, reasonable, and magnanimous. He understood the way this could disarm opponents. If this was the plan, it worked. The colonists rejected the deal out of hand, and many moderates and outside observers were outraged. It made the colonists look like the radical and intransigent party, and the rebels look like the reasonable ones. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. As 1791 turned into 1792, Toussaint was also building his reputation as a military leader and administrator. His commander, Georges Biassou, preferred to stay in camp with the main body of his army. So, Toussaint was often the person responsible for restoring some measure of order in rebel-controlled territory, and ensuring that life would continue more or less normally for the people of the North, despite the war. He also led troops in the field, conducting raids on isolated enemy forces, and fighting small-scale defensive battles, as the colonial militias and French regulars fought to tighten the noose around rebel territory. But despite all their efforts, The rebels were falling back. The patch of land they controlled in the north was shrinking. The process was slow and bloody, but inch by inch, the colonists were reasserting control over Haiti. The former governor's strategy of containing the rebellion finally seemed to be paying dividends. But there was an important flaw in this plan. The rebels controlled most of the rugged interior of the country, including the colony's eastern border with the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo. Santo Domingo was the larger of the two colonies on the island, but it was much poorer and much less fertile. The Spanish colonists had always been jealous of the success of the French planters across the island, and had long dreamed of bringing Haiti under Spanish control or, failing that, supplanting the Haitians as the chief sugar suppliers to Europe. The Spanish colonists were no great liberals. They enslaved people too, and Spanish colonial society had a racist caste system, just like every other New World colony. However, the way they saw it, Haiti's troubles were Santo Domingo's opportunities. So, they were quite happy to supply the Haitian rebels with food, supplies, even muskets and ammunition. And the ports of Santo Domingo provided a venue where rebel agents could cut deals with British, Dutch, or American merchants, many of whom were happy to get in on the action as long as the money was right. After looting some of the wealthiest plantations in the world, the rebels were flush with cash, and plenty of merchants were willing to put aside any scruples they may have had about the rebellion to get a piece of that cash. Still, this was a desperate time for the rebels. They still controlled a decent-sized chunk of territory, but the colonists were closing in. 
All they could really do was hang on and hope for some change in the situation. This was not a forlorn hope. As you know, the enemy was a fragile coalition which could fall apart at any moment. And we've already seen on several occasions the way news from Paris could act as a wild card in Haitian affairs. The current situation was unfavorable to the rebels, but it was fluid and could change in an instant. In early 1792, the rebels started to get some good luck. Citizen Louis Capet, formerly known as King Louis XVI, was executed by the revolutionary government in Paris. In the aftermath of this earth-shattering news, the old regimes of Europe began forming a grand alliance to defeat the new French Republic on the battlefield. The War of the First Coalition had begun. Once again, news from Europe had transformed the situation in Haiti overnight. At the beginning of 1792, it looked like it was just a matter of time before the colonists regained control over Haiti. By spring, there were suddenly a whole host of new players on the scene, hostile to the colonists and looking to secure Haiti for themselves. Think of how this looked to the other European powers. One of the richest territories in the world was practically up for grabs. Spanish Santo Domingo shared a long border with Haiti, and Spanish Cuba was only a short hop from Haiti's west coast, where most of the population lived. As we've discussed, the Spanish had long harbored ambitions of taking Haiti for themselves, and Spain was now at war with the French Republic. British Jamaica wasn't much further away, and the British also had eyes for Haiti, and they boasted the most powerful navy in the world. They too were now at war with France, and free to pursue their ambitions. Toussaint immediately went to Santo Domingo to formalize the de facto alliance between the Spanish and the rebels. He got a very favorable deal. The rebels agreed to be inducted into the Spanish armed forces, as a special auxiliary militia. Theoretically, this put the rebellion under Spanish command, although Given the practical difficulties of actually directing insurgent activity from Madrid, both sides must have understood this was purely nominal. In exchange, the rebels got more of what they'd already been receiving on an informal basis, supplies, equipment, money, and support from the colonial authorities in Santo Domingo. But more importantly, the rebels were now cloaked in the legitimacy of the Spanish state. Legally, they had been outlaws. Now they were soldiers of King Carlos IV. Most importantly of all, only free people served as soldiers. The Spanish promised to emancipate the rebels from slavery, all of the rebels, not only the leadership. This agreement was a win-win. The rebels got a much-needed lifeline and the Spanish got a ready-made guerrilla army which was already fighting in the field against the French, holding territory, and would need much less upkeep and resupply than conventional regular forces. And so, Toussaint, Georges Biassou, and other rebel leaders became generals in the Spanish colonial militia. This deal breathed new life into the rebel movement, and the timing could not have been better. The news of war and political dissent among the colonists had thrown the enemies of the rebellion into confusion, just as the insurgents were regaining their strength. This invigoration of the rebel cause seems to have coincided with Toussaint's own rise in the ranks. Obviously, as the man who brokered this deal, he got a little prestige bump. But more importantly, by now, he was Biassou's principal field commander. He took a strike force of around 4,000 men and went on the offensive. This would go down in history as a brilliant campaign, but there were no great battles. Toussaint was not that type of general. His preferred tools were mobility and diplomacy. His men infiltrated enemy territory, enveloped and isolated enemy towns, and then took them by negotiation, intimidation, and subterfuge. By the end of the year, Toussaint had taken Ganaive, a major town on the west coast of Haiti. He had pushed all the way to the sea. For the first time since the early days of the rebellion, 
the land routes between north and south were totally cut off by rebel forces. And all of this had been achieved without a single major engagement. Avoiding big battles is a key tenet of guerrilla warfare. If your enemy has superior training and firepower, you don't want to let him get into a situation where he can bring them to bear on your troops. Toussaint seems to have understood this principle intuitively, and would follow it his whole career. The Spanish governor of Santo Domingo was so pleased by the conquest of Ganaive that he awarded Toussaint a medal from the king. But the Spanish might not have been quite so pleased with their new ally if they were aware of the full scope of his activities. By now, Toussaint knew that the Spanish had no interest in truly liberating Haiti, only in controlling it. They were willing to grant emancipation to the rebel soldiers, but not in any broader program of uplifting the black population of the island. They simply wanted to replace the French flag with a Spanish one and reap the profits of the colony's sugar economy, just as the French had done before the rebellion. They were willing to reward those who helped them in this enterprise, but they envisioned life in the colony more or less returning to normal, complete with slaves and overseers. Spanish interests were not truly aligned with those of Toussaint, who was already developing a vision of a new kind of country, with a new kind of economy and social structure. To him, the alliance with Spain was nothing more than a convenience, a means to a much greater end. In pursuit of that greater end, Toussaint was still engaged in talks with the French. Even after they had rejected his generous peace terms the previous year, Toussaint hadn't broken off contact. Even after he'd accepted a commission as a general in the militia of one of France's enemies, contact wasn't broken off. In these talks, Toussaint was quite clear about what he wanted. Full emancipation of all slaves, and the establishment of a totally colorblind society. No exceptions, no caveats. The French were not willing to go that far, at least not yet. But they were listening. With Toussaint rapidly distinguishing himself as one of the most skilled rebel commanders, they couldn't afford not to listen. Interestingly, by this time, Toussaint was also reaching out to the mixed-race community. As we discussed last episode, despite their shared African heritage, there had never been much solidarity between the black and mixed-race communities of Haiti. Toussaint hoped to change that by tying the mixed-race community's struggle for civil rights and political recognition to the fortunes of the slave rebellion. He argued liberty was an all-or-nothing proposition, that mixed-race Haitians could never be truly free from prejudice until the very concept of racial hierarchy was abolished entirely. This is the genesis of Toussaint's public image, which would soon be familiar to much of the world. At this stage in his career, Toussaint was still one of many rebel commanders, and only at the third tier of leadership, subordinate to Georges Biassou, who in turn owed his loyalty to an even higher rebel commander. But Toussaint was positioning himself as something more, as a man who fought not only for his own faction and his own community, but for universal principles, like liberty and equality. He was fighting for a new Haiti, one that wouldn't be founded on violence and domination, but on liberty and equality. I think this is why, in spite of everything, he was still carrying on his talks with the French. Some of this was simple pragmatism. A wily operator like Toussaint could surely see the value in keeping open lines of communication with the enemy. However, as we'll see, he was serious about trying to forge some kind of deal with the Republic. As you've probably noticed by now, the Haitian political scene could change in an instant. Yesterday's mortal enemy could be tomorrow's ally. And Toussaint could see that he had more in common ideologically with revolutionary France than with the conservative Spanish monarchy. His ultimate goal was the abolition of slavery and the end of the racial caste system. 
it was a lot easier to imagine an Enlightenment-inspired radical republic getting on board with that agenda than a globe-spanning, reactionary Catholic monarchy. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now that he was emerging as a major player on the Haitian political stage, Toussaint needed to settle on a name. After the outbreak of the rebellion, he used his legal surname, Breda, less and less. Understandable, since that name was a relic of his life as a slave. In his early revolutionary career, he used a variety of pseudonyms. This is a smart move when you're trying to stay incognito. But now he was trying to build up his public profile, to make a name for himself, so to speak. And that can get confusing when you use multiple pseudonyms. He settled on Louverture, meaning the opening or the aperture. According to one story, this name was actually coined by a French officer, who, after being defeated by Toussaint, exclaimed, quote, That man can create an opening anywhere. End quote. But this is probably apocryphal. The concept of an opening, a gate, or a door has deep significance in traditional Haitian spirituality. Even today, practitioners of Haitian voodoo invoke a spirit called Papa Legba, who can act as a door between the spirit world and the human world. The illusion probably would have been obvious to most black Haitians. Papa Legba could act as the gateway to the world of the spirits, and Papa Toussaint could act as the gateway to freedom. Papa Legba also represents eloquence and perception, and is usually depicted as a kindly old man. It's easy to see how this fit with Toussaint. He was much older than most of the rebels, and he was educated and worldly, always thinking two steps ahead. To people who had never known life outside the plantation, he probably seemed almost supernaturally capable. It would have been natural to associate him with the spirit who embodies these qualities. Personally, Toussaint was a devout Catholic, but he felt no contradiction between his religious beliefs and these traditional spiritual practices. Remember, he was also a master of African herbal medicine, which was closely connected to traditional West African religion. It probably seemed strange to European observers but Toussaint and his followers saw no contradiction. As we've discussed in past episodes, this type of blending of traditional folk beliefs and Catholicism was hardly unique. It was quite common in France as well. At this time in history, many average French Catholics also believed in things like witchcraft and fairies. They felt this was entirely normal, and so did most Haitian Catholics. As Toussaint's star was rising, his country was sinking deeper into bloody chaos. Even in the face of an apocalyptic slave uprising, the colonists were not able to contain their fractiousness and maintain a united front. This was exacerbated by the revolutionary government in Paris. As you might remember from our early episodes on the course of the revolution, this period saw a lot of, um let's call them abrupt changes in government. These led to abrupt changes in policy, including colonial policy. Each one of these sudden shifts produced a political whiplash in Haiti, as opponents of the new policy were angered, and they often rioted or took up arms. In government-controlled areas, the enmity between the small whites and the mixed-race population could barely be contained. There were all kinds of ugly incidents, street battles, lynchings, and even small-scale warfare. In late 1791, one of these episodes of racial violence in Port-au-Prince spun out of control. Fires broke out, and by the next day, most of the colonial capital had been burned to the ground. 
When these colonial factions went to war with one another, they quickly ran into manpower problems. As we've discussed, the non-black population of Haiti was incredibly small, well under 100,000 individuals, and only a fraction of them were military-aged males, fit for combat. If you take a population that small and start dividing it against itself, you are bound to run into manpower problems pretty quickly. And so, all over Haiti, white and mixed-race leaders began arming and training slaves to fight in their internal struggles. Surely it must have occurred to some of them that they were training potential soldiers for their most powerful and numerous enemy, the rebel ex-slave armies of the North, but those considerations apparently took a back seat to the immediate need to prosecute their squabbles with one another. You have to marvel at the short-sightedness. Even after over a year of watching the power of the rebellion demonstrated with blood and fire, it seems the colonists were still underestimating the black population and overestimating their own control over the colony. Watching half the country burn down and thousands of people slaughtered doesn't seem to have taught them many lessons. Even now, with foreign armies poised to invade Haiti, the colonists failed to set aside their differences and form a united front. They were staring their own destruction in the face, and still, many seemed more interested in bickering with their neighbors than saving themselves. I think being on the top of this brutal slave system for so long had created an impenetrable arrogance in the minds of many of the colonists. Perhaps, once you've spent enough time imagining yourself as some kind of vengeful god, wielding the power of life and death over your fellow man, you start to mistake your own will for reality. Of course, with all that said, there was discord within the rebel ranks as well. Remember, the rebellion was very loosely structured. The insurgents operated in bands, ranging from a few hundred to a few thousand. Each band had its own leader, some of whom operated more or less independently, and some of whom owed their allegiance to one of several leading rebel generals, like Toussaint did to Georges Biassou. All of these different, sometimes competing leaders had their own opinions about the best way to prosecute the war. During the early stages of the rebellion, the main points of contention were strategy and the treatment of white civilians. But, as the war raged on, and the political situation developed, disagreements began to emerge over ideology. Obviously, all of the rebels were against the white-dominated colonial establishment, and wanted freedom from slavery. But what specifically were they fighting for? In their negotiations with the colonists, the French, and the Spanish, they had to make demands, articulate some kind of program and that program was still largely undefined. Despite their resurgence in 1792 and 3, it was still looking very unlikely that the rebels would be able to achieve a total military victory and push the colonists out of Haiti by force alone. That meant victory would have to involve some kind of accommodation with at least one of the other armed groups vying for power in Haiti. What would that accommodation look like? The rebels wanted freedom, of course, but freedom is quite a vague concept. What were they hoping to achieve through all this bloody struggle? Two schools of thought seem to have emerged among the rebel leadership. The first held that this whole debate was superfluous. The rebels had already gotten the deal they'd hoped for from the Spanish. The King of Spain had granted freedom to all rebel fighters, given officers' commissions to the leaders, and extended political and legal legitimacy to the insurgency. All that remained, by this line of thinking, was for the rebels to do their part as newly minted soldiers of King Carlos IV, ensure that Spain won the war, so that Spanish Santo Domingo could annex Haiti. Then, the deal with Spain would become permanent, and the newly free rebels could enjoy the fruits of victory. Presumably, life in the colony would more or less go back to normal, but with tens of thousands of former rebels now free. 
Proponents of this idea included Georges Biassou, Toussaint's commander, and Jean-François Papillon, who by this stage was widely seen as kind of a first among equals of the rebel generals. However, there was also another school of thought, made up of people who were dissatisfied with the Spanish deal, and felt it was nothing more than a temporary expediency, a stepping stone on the way to grander goals. As we've discussed, this was Toussaint's thinking, and thanks to his brilliant campaign in 1793, he came to be seen as the main proponent of this position within the leadership. Louverture was beginning to articulate a broader vision for the colony. He believed the rebellion was not about the personal fortunes of the participants, but about principles, that there could be no true victory until slavery was totally abolished and the people of the colony enjoyed full social and legal equality enshrined in the law. I think this helps explain why Toussaint was still holding out hope for a deal with the French. Even though they were currently mortal enemies, his ethos was a lot closer to that of the revolutionaries than that of the old regime powers. His vision of Haiti dovetailed with the republican vision of France, even if the French were too stubborn to see it just yet. This would mean an entirely new type of colony, one founded on human rights and governed in the common interest, rather than founded on domination and governed to maximize profit. It was a seductive vision, but would it work? And, perhaps more importantly, would anyone be willing to attempt such a radical experiment with the most profitable colony in the world? These debates within the rebel leadership must have gotten pretty heated, because by 1793, there were reports of skirmishes between Toussaint's men and other rebel troops loyal to Jean-François Papillon. At one point, Jean-François even had Toussaint imprisoned, but Georges Biassou was able to intervene and get him released. Meanwhile, things were getting desperate in the French Republican camp. The rebels were gaining ground, now with the open support of Spain. The Royal Navy was beginning to land British troops on the western coast. The British moved very slowly and cautiously, perhaps understandable given the chaotic state of the colony, but they were a major threat. They controlled the seas, they were well-trained and well-supplied, and worst of all, many white and mixed-race colonists were openly welcoming them into Haiti. When the British landed at the town of Jeremy, they were greeted almost like a liberating army, with cheers of, long live the English. You know it must be a strange situation if French people are talking like that. Not so long ago, many of these same colonists had been calling themselves patriots and waving the tricolor. Now, they were apparently happy to become British subjects, as long as it meant the restoration of order. The main power in the official French Republican government of the colony was one of the commissioners, a member of the National Convention who had been sent to Haiti to represent the revolutionary legislature. His name was Leger Felicité Santanax. He's probably the last person anyone would have imagined playing a pivotal role in world history. He was short and fat, with a big round face that made him look much younger than his 30 years. He kind of looked like Bilbo Baggins, but without the charm. But appearances can be deceptive. This unassuming man, was about to change the course of the Haitian Revolution. Sontanax felt his back was to the wall. When he arrived in Haiti, he immediately recognized that the slave rebellion had changed everything. Even if the insurgents were ultimately defeated, the pre-revolutionary colonial order had obviously been shattered forever. However, few of the colonists saw things that way. Even after years of anarchy and an orgy of bloodshed, most were still clinging to the hope that things would eventually go back to the way they used to be. Sontanax saw that was impossible. If French control of Haiti was to survive, the French administration would have to acknowledge the fact that the world had changed. Sontanax soon came to distrust the colonists. Everyone seemed to have a hidden agenda. 
the colonists were willing to set aside any principle and embrace any expediency in the name of their own property and profit. Sontanaks could scheme with the best of them, but at heart, he was an idealistic liberal lawyer. He really did believe in the ideals of the revolution, and it disgusted him to see these greedy colonials play with these ideals and twist them to their own benefit. By 1793, Sontanax was running short on friends. More and more of the colonists were openly defying his authority, or even defecting to the British. Something drastic had to be done, or the Republican cause in Haiti might simply wither away, and the colony would be lost forever. With his options running out, Sontanax decided it was time for bold action. The trajectory of events was leading inexorably towards defeat, so he would do something big enough to change that trajectory. On August 29, 1793, Commissioner Sontanax issued a proclamation, abolishing slavery within his jurisdiction. Almost everyone in Haiti was completely stunned by this development. Many didn't believe it, including Toussaint Louverture. In secret, he had been lobbying Sontanax to take this step, but he didn't think he'd gotten there yet. His initial reaction was that this must be a trick. Sontanax was attempting to tie the cause of the Republic to the cause of the black community of Haiti. His old constituency was abandoning him in droves, and so he was attempting to cultivate a new one. There's an obvious parallel here to events in France. Sontanax's proclamation was released only a few weeks after the National Convention declared the levée en masse in France, which mobilized the population for war. Both in France and in Haiti, the Republicans were beset by enemies on all sides, and by traitors from within. And in both cases, the revolutionary authorities appealed to the people to rise up and defend the regime. Next time, we'll see how this act of desperation played out. Until then, thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.